Good morning. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can come to your word. So we ask that this morning you would help us to understand it. You would help it to be taught. You would help it to be heard. You would help it to be applied. And that you would help us as we change our lives and make us more like Christ. Lord God, we ask. Amen. Well, we all love to be accepted, don't we? The validation that it gives us, the confidence. But there's hardly anything worse than being rejected. Why do we feel so nervous before a job interview? It's because you're about to get accepted or rejected. Your CV, your work history, your talents, your skills... They're all either accepted or rejected. I've been on the receiving end of both. When you get it, you feel 10 feet tall. But when you don't, it can be really devastating. When I was trying to get my first permanent full-time job, I had a run of rejections. Often I wasn't even getting an interview, just rejected on my application. But I finally got an interview and it went really well. And you know when you feel like you've got it in the bag. And the next day I got a call, Mr. Elliot we're delighted to be able to offer you the job. Ten foot tall. Felt brilliant. But then something happened. You know when you have a job interview and you get the call and it says you don't get the job and then you spend the next few days imagining what would happen if they called you back and told you that they'd had a rethink or that actually they did want you to have the job. Well, that happened to me except the opposite. (laughs) Hello, Mr. Elliot. I'm really sorry that I have to call you, but the job is actually no longer available. (laughs) I felt devastated. What had I done in between that meant that I couldn't get this job? Or what about having an offer for a house accepted or rejected? That tense wait for the phone call back, wishing that you had Kirsty and Phil on a picnic bench with you to advise and negotiate. Your offer is either accepted or rejected. Or relationships. That's a tough area. You put your heart on the line and you're either accepted or rejected. Well, there's one area that's more divisive than any other. One message that is guaranteed to get a reaction. One thing that actually demands someone either accept or reject it. And that is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. It has to be either accepted or or rejected. There's no sitting on the fence. And when we, as Christians, spread that message, we are at risk of personal rejection too. Mark 6, 1 to 31, the passage that we've just had read, is all about people, firstly Jesus, then his disciples, and finally John the Baptist, sharing the gospel with others. And the hearers accepting or rejecting both the message and them. So let's look at the passage. And the first thing we're going to look at, accept or reject Jesus and his message. The chapter starts with Jesus, homeward bound. He's returning to Nazareth along with his disciples. Now this isn't necessarily an easy trip. Remember just a few weeks ago in chapter 3, Jesus' family were saying that they thought he'd lost his mind. 
We don't know what he does when he gets there. But when it gets to the Sabbath, Jesus does what he always does. He teaches at the synagogue. And at first, it looks like it's gone really well. Just look down at the middle of verse 2. Many were amazed. But then we read on. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They're not amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his teaching. This carpenter, little Jesus. Remember when he was a kid? He's not even had a good education. In fact, don't some of his family still live in this village? By calling him Mary's son, they're probably throwing in a barbed insult about his birth. Back home, they remember. They were there. This isn't Joseph's boy. No, this is Mary's son. They're hinting at the rumors of illegitimacy surrounding his birth. Just take a second and picture the dweebiest person that you went to school with when you were a kid. I know this is a little bit harsh and judgmental, but just go with me. Imagine the smallest, weakest, most unsporty, clumsiest bookworm. You get the picture? I apologize if the person in your head is you. (laughs) Okay, now imagine that you turned on the TV yesterday morning, 25 past 8. You turned to Sky Sports 1 to watch the rugby. The Lions against New Zealand. You can tell that I've lived down here for a considerable amount of time when I'm not just talking about football. The national anthems are being sung. Remember the hope that you had in that moment? And as the camera goes down the line, you see these gigantic men that are about to go into battle against each other. But then as the camera continues down the line, you see one face and you think, I know them. It's him. The person that was in your head, it's them, except it's kind of not really him, because he's massive. He's got a huge, thick, glorious beard, even though the last time you saw them, they spoke with a squeak, and his muscles just instinctively make you want to cover yourself a little bit. That's what's happening here. Who's this Jesus kid? Who does he think he is? He couldn't do any of this before. We used to know him, but look at him. He thinks he's too good for us now. He's better than us with all these miracles and this message. This boy done good story doesn't give them any joy at all. These verses actually give us a a special insight into the humanity of Christ. When he was a child, he wasn't a a wonder kid. (laughs) It's not that everyone necessarily expected great things from him. He was normal. Fully God, but fully man. Totally normal, except totally without sin. So the people in his hometown take offense at him. The word means that they literally stumble over him. They can't accept his message because of who it is that is bringing it. How dare he tell us anything? Jesus shares the gospel message and his hometown reject both it and him. And if you look at verse 4, Jesus knows that this is going to happen. 
he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Jesus doesn't say a prophet has honor everywhere except in his own home. No, that's not true. He knows that others will reject him too, but it's particularly common to be rejected, and it's particularly hard to be accepted in your home town amongst your own people. And Jesus ends this little section mirroring their reaction at the start. Now, Jesus is amazed, but he's amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed that they didn't accept his message. You know, this morning it may be that you're particularly finding it hard to tell your nearest and dearest about Jesus, your oldest friends, your family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. They may be the ones you struggle to witness to the most. Maybe they think or even say that you've lost your mind. Maybe they're quick to remember who you used to be and the things that you used to do. Friend, Jesus understands. He's been there. Look at this passage and be encouraged. Your Lord walked this very path before you, but he loved those closest to him enough to risk rejection. Because rejection of a family relationship or close friendship is not anywhere near as serious as a rejection of God. I know that that is totally countercultural, even in a Christian context, maybe even especially in a Christian context where a right love of family can very quickly become an ultimate love of family. But it's true. For some, in particular for many Muslims who become Christians, sharing the gospel automatically and instantly means being rejected by those closest to them. If you know how this feels, know that Jesus understands what you're going through, but also know that he shared the gospel with them regardless. And just look at verse five. It says that Jesus couldn't do any miracles except a few. This doesn't mean that Jesus suddenly lacked power. Jesus has the power but not the will to do these miracles. This is the first warning in the passage, a warning to those who have not yet accepted the message of the gospel. You see, if someone rejects Jesus, Jesus will reject them. Jesus always gives people exactly what they want regarding himself. If they want nothing to do with him, he will say, okay. And they won't have anything to do with him eternally. They'll be totally cut off from him. On the other hand, if you accept the gospel and accept Jesus, he will accept you and will want everything to do with you. And you will have him and he will have you eternally. You'll be with him forever. So firstly, Jesus and his message rejected. Secondly, accept or reject the disciples and their message. After preaching in Nazareth, Jesus teaches from village to village in the local area. But you see, this marks a new phase in Jesus' ministry. His disciples, the 12 who he called back in chapter 3, 
have been trained and prepped and primed for ministry themselves. They've spent time with Jesus and now it's time for them to go on mission. Imagine that conversation. Listen, guys, you're ready. I'm sure they never felt less ready for anything in their lives. Jesus sends them out in twos for accountability and encouragement, and they have very specific instructions. Just look at verse 8. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is reminiscent of the instructions given to the Israelites at the Passover back in Exodus chapter 12. They are to go in peace, defenseless, fully trusting in God and with urgency. No weapons, no protection, no provisions, no packing. In Exodus, the 12 tribes were about to see liberty from physical slavery. Here, in Mark 6, the 12 disciples of Jesus are about to see liberty from spiritual slavery. Their authority for the mission comes directly from Jesus. See that in verse 7? And if the authority comes from Jesus, then so does the ministry itself. Look at verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Because their authority comes from Jesus, they can't do anything but what he has already done. Their message is exactly the same as Jesus was in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Do you remember? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And their activities are exactly the same as Jesus. They cast out demons and heal those who are sick. The only difference now is that while Jesus has been preaching in one village at a time, his newly assembled ministry team now means that seven can be reached at once. Jesus, along with the six pairs of disciples. Even though Jesus is still with them at this point, he's looking to equip his disciples for when he's gone. Because that's how God has chosen to work in this world sending men and women who have accepted the gospel message to tell others who haven't. Sending men and women like us, like you and like me. We are the means by which God will reach this world. We are the means by which God has chosen to reach this world. We are particularly the means by which God will reach Chessington. (coughs) Excuse me. If you feel unprepared, unequipped, like you won't do a particularly good job, well, firstly, take a look at the disciples and know that God won't let that stop him. Here we see the disciples on their first foray into the mission field, and it looks relatively successful. But they're often shown throughout the rest of the New Testament as failures, Peter in particular. Yet God built the church on him. And if these men hadn't spread the gospel message, none of us would be here this morning. And secondly, if you feel unprepared or unequipped, then get prepared. Get equipped. Spend time with Jesus, just like the disciples did. Read the Bible. Pray. Spend time with men and women who are better prepared and equipped than you. 
Ben Clark is our evangelism pastor. Where's Ben? Ben's our evangelism pastor. Preparing and equipping us for this is literally his job. How much would you want a queue of people beside you this morning, Ben, to ask them to do this? That's what he's here for. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you, share his experiences, and help you be better able to share the gospel. So as disciples or followers of Jesus, we must take up that mantle. As people who have accepted and been accepted by Jesus, we must pass that message on to others too. But there's another hint of rejection here in verse 11, and another warning. The message wouldn't be received everywhere. Despite the seemingly relative success of this first mission, the disciples were and would continue to be rejected. And when that happened, they were to shake off the dust from their feet as they leave the town. The picture is intended to show that God's judgment is coming on those who reject him. So firstly, Jesus and his message rejected. Secondly, the disciples and their message accepted with a hint of rejection. And thirdly, accept or reject John the Baptist and his message. Look with me, please, at verse 14. King Herod heard about this. I think the word this equates to Mark chapters 1 to 6 as a whole, rather than just the 12 being sent out. This is Herod Antipas. Now, for whatever reason, I think over the last 18 months, every sermon I've preached has involved a Herod. I feel like I've got to know them intimately. His uncle, Herod the Great, was the ruler of the region when Jesus was born. The man who wanted to protect his own dynasty so much that he ordered the murder of all the young boys when he heard that a king had been born. And his nephew, Herod Agrippa, is the Herod who will jail Peter and be eaten by worms in Acts 12. Do you remember? Well, this Herod, Herod Antipas, is the one who longed to meet Jesus, but then mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. And we see here the first time that he hears about Jesus, the moment that piques his interest. What he heard about Jesus was interesting. Look down at verse 14. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. People have all these different theories about Jesus, but none are correct. Some think that he's literally John the Baptist resurrected. Others think the same, except that he's Elijah. And still others think that he's just a brand new prophet, a renewing of the line of Old Testament prophets after a gap of around 400 years. Now, even though they're wrong, it really is interesting what people are saying about Jesus. You see, God promised Israel that Elijah would come back, or one like Elijah, at least, back in Malachi, one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. That man was indeed John the Baptist, who back in John chapter 1 saw Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, this is the one who have been preparing the way for. But just as Gareth showed us earlier, the people didn't understand. They didn't see clearly. They were kind of squinting in the right general direction, but they didn't really know what they were looking at. 
Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist. Maybe Elijah. Maybe a brand new prophet. But the one thing that nobody said that he was, was the Messiah, the promised one of God. But Herod hears these theories and he's sure. He knows which theory he's going to put his money on. Look down at verse 16. When Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Herod thinks he's being haunted. Why? Well, here we get a flashback starting from verse 17. J.J. Abrams and the creators of Lost didn't quite invent the flashback as they told us. So what happened? Well, Herod was married. And a woman called Herodias was also married. In fact, she was married to Herod's brother, Philip. But Herod quite liked Herodias. It all gets a little bit rang gigs here. So Herod gets divorced. Herodias gets divorced. And they marry each other. But is it happily ever after? Well, only until John the Baptist enters the scene. He sure knows how to ruin a honeymoon. He comes to Herod and says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. A very straight message. One which is A, very clear. B, true. And C, not particularly extraordinary. Even today, as we saw in the tabloids a few years ago, stealing your brother's wife is still very much taboo, even if not much is. What's the outcome of John's message? Just look at verse 19. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herodias, straight up, wants to kill him. After all, if Herod listens to him, she'll lose her crown, her position, her standing, her riches, her authority, and of course her husband. So she simply wants to eliminate the threat. Herod, well, his response is a bit more complicated. He definitely lives by the maxim, happy wife, happy life. So he throws John in prison to appease Herodias. But then he also protects him while he's in there. He he jails him, but then occasionally brings him out and holds audiences with him because he likes to hear what he has to say. But then when he does hear what he has to say, he doesn't really have a clue what he's talking about. And he knows that John is a righteous and holy man, but that didn't stop him from locking him up. He's very mixed up. But despite Herod's mixed feelings, Herodias' single-mindedness wins out. Look at the beginning of verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. We can see that Herodias has just been biding her time. And finally, her plan is put into action. On her husband's birthday, she sends a daughter. We know from other historical texts that her name is Salome. And she sends her in to dance for the dignitaries invited to the party. And there's no doubt that Herodias orchestrates all of this. Salome was only about 13 years old at the time, and still needed parental permission to do anything. And so Herodias has no problem in taking advantage of and using her own daughter to get what she wants. Salome dances for those invited. Suffice to say, it wasn't a waltz. 
And Herod is so pleased with this shameless show that he offers her anything she wants in verse 23. He doesn't really have a kingdom, by the way. His authority comes from Rome, but why would that stop him? Salome goes and asks mummy what to ask for, and it feels like this is when she's led in on the plan. Ask for John the Baptist's head. But Salome has her mother's streak in her because she gets imaginative and asks for it to be served on a platter. If you look at verse 26, you'll see that Herod is distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she, of course, gave it to her mother. John the Baptist's message and John the Baptist himself are very much rejected. Doesn't this remind you a little bit of the parable of the sower that we heard about a few weeks ago? The different soils and the different hearts. Firstly, we have Herodias outrightly rejecting the message of the gospel. Let's not beat around the bush. John's message wasn't that cryptic. It is the message of the gospel. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's the same thing as saying repent. Is that you this morning? Despite being here, have you rejected the message? And are you just waiting for the opportune time? Maybe you can't wait for your mum and dad to stop making you come. Maybe you can't wait for the weekend over the summer that your wife is away so that you can just stay in bed. Maybe you can't wait for the kids to finally leave home. Then, after having done your bit for them, you can pack it all in. It was never right for you anyway. Are you waiting for the opportune time? Or maybe you're a little bit like Herod. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're really not sure what you think. Maybe you're living immorally, but you're enjoying having a little bit of religion on the side, just on Sundays, because it makes you feel better. Maybe you like coming here and listening to the things that are said and the songs that are being sung, but if you're being honest, you don't really understand any of it. Maybe you're willing to listen to some of the gospel message, just not the bits that challenge how you live. All the bits about love, you've memorized them. The things about heaven, that's great. But when it gets into, it is not lawful to, territory, then you just switch off. Maybe possibly like Herod, you think that you've not rejected the gospel. Okay, so you you know that you've not accepted it, but you've not rejected it. You're still entertaining it. We're never almost a Christian. You can't sit on the fence. We either accept or reject the gospel. And the Bible tells us that rejecting the message of the gospel and rejecting the person of Jesus Christ is a dangerous thing. Herod... He was ultimately killed in an insurrection. Josephus, the historian, tells us that public opinion turned against him on this day, the day that he had John the Baptist 
executed. So much so that when he was killed, there were parties in the streets. Do you want to guess who killed him? The father of his ex-wife. He came and he killed him. Rejecting the message of the gospel is dangerous. It was shown to be dangerous to Herod at the end of his life. But in death, he faced something far more dangerous because he faced the wrath and judgment of God and was eternally rejected by him. And let's just turn our attention to John. What of him? Friends, the road of following Jesus is dangerous. John prepared the way for Jesus and in a sense he prepares our way too, suffering here for spreading the message of the gospel. We could ask the question, could we be killed in this country, in our lifetime? I think the answer has to be, we don't know. Maybe. I do know that just a couple of weeks ago, Tim Farron had to resign as the Liberal Democrat leader because he accepted the message of the gospel. Persecution is coming. We've been living in a strange pseudo-Christian culture for a long time. This is not the norm. Look at the stories of our brothers and sisters across the world and you'll see people walking the path of real suffering for the sake of the gospel. Real rejection for accepting Jesus. Rejection from their friends and family, from the authorities, from people who want them dead. So, Firstly, Jesus and his message, rejected. Secondly, the disciples and their message, accepted with a hint of rejection. John the Baptist and his message, rejected. Finally, very briefly, we get to see what happens when the disciples come back from their mission. Follow with me from verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They come back to the authority who sent them out. They come back to the man who they were on mission for. They come back to Jesus. Can you imagine them sharing these stories? I think, as a picture, this is just beautiful. Imagine them clamoring, Jesus, 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 listen to what we did. Jesus, Jesus, we healed someone just like you. Jesus, we preached the same message as you did. And guess what? Someone accepted. Oh, well, Jesus, we healed this girl. It was even better. You can imagine. But Jesus, ever the caring shepherd, tells them that they need some rest. He wants to look after their physical needs and he takes them to a quiet place even though as we'll see next week it doesn't last for very long. And I think at this time of year this can be a real challenge, most definitely one that I've been challenged by myself. The disciples' rest here is in Jesus. Their rest is not ultimately found in a holiday. They actually go on a boat but they're not on a cruise. They find rest and recuperation in the presence of Jesus. We need to use our summer holidays well. Yes, for physical rest and relaxation. 
Working in London is hard. (laughs) Work in general is hard. Having time with family and friends is absolutely essential. Jesus gives his disciples physical rest, a break, but in his presence. Don't take a holiday from being a Christian this summer. Don't allow the lack of routine to ruin your discipline. Isn't it strange that often the hardest time to have a quiet time is on holiday when you have literally nothing else to do? It gets to the Wednesday of your holiday and you've read every newspaper three times, even the Spanish ones, and you've listened to 17 different podcasts about transfer rumors that are never going to come true, but you've not touched your Bible once. Use any time you have off over this summer to spend some time with Jesus. So to finish, here in these verses we've seen Jesus, his disciples, and John the Baptist all share the gospel message. And that message is either accepted or rejected. They are either accepted or rejected. And mainly, the message and them are rejected. Jesus was amazed that he was rejected. Amazed at their lack of faith. But you know, Jesus' rejection in his hometown by his family and his friends is just a shadow of the ultimate rejection that he was to suffer. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus in more ways than one. Yes, he prepared the way for Jesus, as promised in Malachi. But when he was executed for the message that he proclaimed, he pointed to someone else who was to die for the message that he proclaimed. Because when Jesus was rejected by men, Ultimately, they nailed him to a cross. They rejected his message and they rejected him. But friends, even that isn't the ultimate rejection that Jesus was to suffer. Because on the cross, Jesus was rejected by his own father. He was rejected by God so that we could be accepted by God. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was rejected by God the Father, by his Father, by his family, so that we need never be rejected and could come into God's family. That is the gospel message. If you haven't already, come to him today. Come to the cross and have your sins forgiven and be accepted by God. And if you have accepted the gospel message, then friend, you must be willing to share in Jesus' mission and therefore be willing to share in Christ's suffering because sometimes that will mean rejection. There is great joy to be had at going on mission for Jesus, but it's hard, isn't it? putting yourself out there, harder than any job interview, any house buying process. Why is it so hard? Because not only is the message rejected, but we might be too. Which means that in order to share the gospel, we must know two things. Firstly, as we have done, we must look to the cross. We must be overwhelmed again by what God has done for us there. And we must be thankful. And secondly, We must truly believe 
that the consequences of accepting or rejecting the message of the gospel far outweigh the consequences of personal acceptance or rejection. We must be convinced that someone's eternal future is far more important than our potential fleeting friendship. The gospel message, do you accept or reject it? Jesus Christ, do you accept or reject him? Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this is a a hard message to hear this morning with challenges. Father, I ask that you would soften each of our hearts, that you would speak to us individually as only you can, that you would use these poor, frail, unprepared words for your glory. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet accepted the gospel. I pray that today they would. And for those of us who have, Father, I pray that we would long to see others come to you and that we would forget totally about the personal consequences because we know that the glory that awaits is far more precious. Father, most of all, we thank you so much for your son who was rejected for us so that we could be accepted by you. Father, we come again to your cross and we thank you in your name. Amen.